very proud of uh, myself um, that I remembered all those dates and I remembered all those advert <laughs> all those promotional stuff I have to say but then I realized that I forgot the most important announcement today is introducing the guest speaker for today <laughs> so <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, as you know, this is the seventh week of Rooted, and uh, it was very intentional on my part to have more people in this pulpit because, you know, I, as much as I love, love the attention and the limelight being here, I think the American church in general need to have a culture change of uh, having this particular, depending on a particular pastor being on the stage every time and being that speaker. So I want to use some of this time to uh, to to invite people I respect and I learn from uh, and I like to connect with and that's part of our rooted experience and Dan Stevenson's today's speaker is one of them because Dan and Tracy uh, have a lot of things to say about them but actually they are insiders and they don't need a lot of introduction and they are Lake Avenue parts uh, uh, Lake Avenue members but off late they moved from Pasadena we came here 10 years ago Dan and Tracy became our instant immediate friends and Dan Stevenson is actually originally a mechanical engineer one of them and uh, but then decided to become a, a lawyer he's a trial lawyer like you know the guy who the, normally you see in movies and all that, like, like actual lawyers who do actual talking and all that. And then he decided to dabble in seminary and he went to one of our rival seminary, which is Dallas Theological Seminary uh, there in Dallas. Um, and, uh, but then, then he took an early retirement and he is now uh, associated with, he is doing a lot of pro bono work uh, as a lawyer uh, on anti human trafficking area and also he's working with a lot of children's ministry uh, in the developing world with a ministry called Zim Zam and, and amazing things in this uh, and Dan does and he's always an inspiration I know Dan like I said the 10 years ago when we when we landed in Pasadena this is one of the you know the uh, friend I made immediately after coming here now the only person you know even though Dan has all this um, you know, credentials. He is in Pasadena. He is always known as Tracy's husband because <laughs> because Tracy Stevenson has been the BSF teaching leader uh, of women's BSF teaching leader in Pasadena for seven years or something like that. So whenever I talk about Dan, oh, you mean Tracy's husband, right? So so th this is a spiritual power couple. It's a privilege for me and Joanne to be part of their you know friendship again without. Further ado, Dan Stevenson for today's message. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew, and uh, good morning, church. It's so good to be here. I can't even tell you what an honor it is to be in this pulpit after being out in the seats for so many years. Um, it's a little bit daunting, actually, and I told that to the Genesis class. Uh, which I've been a teacher in, and Tracy and I were co-presidents of the class, Genesis class. Yes, you're there. <laughs> okay, well, you need to be praying for me because I'm really nervous right now. Um, and Matthew, thank you for that introduction. I think you could have skipped all of it and just said you were my friend. And uh, that would have been all the credibility I need. Um, but the th one thing that is important that he said is the fact that I'm a lawyer, I'm not a preacher. Um, <laughs> and so 
you're going to hear a little bit about that, um, about my, my law work. Um, but the, the, the main thing to know is that uh, this is not my profession to be up here speaking like this. My usual audience is 12 people. So um, let, me, let me get down to business a little bit. This is week seven, as Matthew said, of, of the Rooted series. I'm building on what um, Josh Swanson taught last week because it's part two of, um, of, of, of this series of um, uh, how to make the most of your life. Now, as you open the workbook, day one of week seven says, compassion in action. And I actually like that phrase better. It's kind of a catchy phrase, compassion in action. And that's the way I've been kind of framing this talk. And that's, that's the way I think you're going to hear it when we look at this great passage of scripture. Um, so let's get down to business and start there. We're, we're in Matthew chapter nine. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible. Um, I think we'll have the words on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 9, 35, verses 10, 1. And why don't we stand to hear the word of God. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. So we're basically going to ask four questions today and hopefully answer them. Um, the first one is, what is this compassion that the Bible talks about? Uh, the second one is, um, what, who are the, the, uh, the people that Jesus had compassion on, the objects of his compassion? The third question is, what did Jesus do about it? What action did he take when he had compassion? And the fourth question is, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for us, what do we do about it? Okay, this is a passage about Jesus, but it has a message for us, and it's loaded, and hopefully we're going to be able to answer all of those questions today. Um, I like to start with the, with the big picture, and the big picture usually is God. So I want to look at a couple of things about the compassion of God. Compassion is an attribute of God. Um, it's something that's always present in him. Everything he says, everything he does, his creation was driven by compassion. Everything he does in our lives is enriched and driven by his compassion. Um, there's a couple of verses from the Old Testament that I think we can put up on the screen here uh, that kind of describe the compassion of God. Um, one of them is uh, from Psalm 145. Um, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. And if that kind of sounds familiar to you, that formula describing the attributes of God is seen at least 13 times in the Old Testament. Compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. 13 times. And in fact, the second verse that we put on the screen there is God describing himself as he passed by Moses on Mount Sinai. 
And his voice said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it's interesting to me, it's, it's telling, I think, that the very first attribute that God uses to describe himself is compassion. So it's an attribute of God, it's part of his very nature, it influences, enriches everything he does. Um, and I think I have a slide here that just sort of lists, uh, for time's sake, um, a, a quick summary of what, um, what the Bible says about God's compassion. Um, God is the father of compassion, which means he's the ultimate source. If you have compassion, you got it from him. Um, he has compassion on all he has made. That includes us. God has compassion on you. He has compassion on me and everything he made. God's compassion is great, it says in Psalms. Um, his supply of compassion is never-ending. It never fails. Lamentations. And the final thing is, he, it says in, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is full of compassion. And the Genesis class knows this from my, my teaching. When the Bible says the word full, it means full to the point of overflowing. It means bursting at the seams. And that's the compassion of God. He's full of, he's full of, over, of overflowing compassion. And just before we move on here, I just want to pause and say, think about that for a second. Our God, the God who created us, the God we serve, the God whose family we're in, is a God who is overflowing, bursting at the seams with compassion, and it influences everything he does. So let's go on and look at, uh, at the compassion of Jesus now. Th think about that, the compassion of God, when we look at what the compassion of Jesus is like. So let's go back to our passage um, and verse 36, which I think we can show on the screen, uh, verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So let's put up the, uh, the Greek word for compassion. You're going to like this. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a crazy word. If you're going to say this word out loud, uh, somebody will offer you a Kleenex. Um, it's unpronounceable, basically. It's uh, uh, splanknizomai, and uh, it, it's basically a very interesting, it's a fascinating word, I think, as I've studied it over the last uh, few weeks. Um, apparently, uh, it's not found in other ancient Greek writings. Uh, the gospel writers apparently made it up. They made up a word. And what they did was they took a noun, splanknon, they took a noun and made it into a verb. So it's a verb. Compassion is a verb. It's an action word. That's significant to me because we're talking about compassion in action, right? So they took a noun and they made it a verb. And basically what it means, what the root word means is, is your stomach, your guts, your intestines, um, the King James says your bowels, could mean your heart, your internal organs, your, your guts, okay? Uh, when, uh, when Judas hung himself in the potter's field, it says in the book of Acts, his guts spilled out 
And that's the same word. So they took that noun for guts and they made it a verb. Um, so it's really interesting to me that that's, that's, uh, that's what we're talking about. And what it means is, what it means is that it's, it's, a, it's something, compassion is something that you can feel. You can feel it physically. Okay? Um, it hits you in the gut. And think about this for a minute. Remember all that bursting at the seams, overflowing compassion that God the Father has? Now take that and put it into a human body, right? Put it into the human body of Jesus within the skin of the Son of God. What is, how is it going to hit him? It's going to hit him in the stomach. <laughs> and Jesus had a stomach. He had intestines. And when he had compassion, he felt it right here. Think about that. And, it's, and what he felt was the divine attribute of compassion in his human stomach. It's, it's sort of mind-boggling to me. And it seems like it would be something uncomfortable for him. And the other thing that we, we notice here is that this passage is talking about crowds in the plural. It's not talking about any particular group of people. It's talking about crowds in general. He went from village to town to village to town, and everywhere he went, there were crowds. So when he saw the crowds, he felt this in his stomach, compassion. And he felt that, that overflowing divine compassion. And he felt it all the time because the crowds followed him everywhere. So uh, to me, um, it's, it's highly motivating, right, that our Savior was a compassionate man, that he felt compassion, and that he felt it constantly, and he felt it in his stomach. Um, the... The passage says that the people that he had compassion on were harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless. So let's put the word for harassed up there on the screen. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting Greek word. It's, this one is, is not made up. It's commonly used in ancient Greek writings. It's actually pronounced ekloi, ekloi, to loosen to dissolve, I, I can't read it back there. I have to look up here. Loosen, dissolve, weaken, exhaust, to be enfeebled or grow weak, to despond or become faint-hearted. Uh, other translations say distressed, dispirited, etc. Um, some of the ancient Greek writings, secular Greek writings would say, would use this word to describe worn out, beaten, battered, mangled, ripped, torn, and skinned alive. So um, I kind of like the, uh, the summary. The, the Living Bible says, their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. So these are the crowds that Jesus had with him all the time, constantly. And he has compassion on them and he feels it in his stomach. And you look at that list and you hear those words that describe those crowds, harassed and helpless. And to me, uh, I think about some things I, I see in our society today. Like uh, my eyes have actually landed on people like this, right? This is describing physical problems, mental health problems, spiritual problems, all together, all in a big mix, 
Where have you seen that? I've seen it in a, in a homeless encampment. I've seen it on Skid Row. I've seen it in the, the Twin Towers here in the cell block with jail prisoners. I've seen it in the slums of Nairobi. I've seen it in the, the orphanages in Romania. And I've seen it on the faces of human trafficking survivors. We have these people today, harassed and helpless. Okay? So keep that in mind when we come to the fourth question today. What about you and me? Um, what I'd like to talk about next, and I think we'll go back to the, the passage. Um, Jesus had compassion on these crowds. He felt it in his stomach, but it didn't stop there. What did he do? What did he do when he had compassion? So let's, look, let's go back to the last three verses of the passage. And I think we can get them up on the screen there. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And he called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, there, there's a progression there. Did you see it? Jesus felt this compassion. The next thing he did was he gathered people together and called for them to pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest means to pray. And by the way, there's a, if you read this account in the book of Luke, Luke talks about Jesus praying all night long Jesus himself praying all night long before he called and sent out the 12 disciples. So he's not only calling them to pray, but he's praying himself. So he feels the compassion, he prays, calls for prayer, and the third thing he does is he takes action. In this case, what he did was he got a group of people together and he, he um, authorized them he trained them, he equipped them to go out and address the problems, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual problems of the people. Sent them out to do that. So, feel, pray, act. That's the model of Jesus. Uh, I do think we have one more slide here that talks about um, actions that Jesus took from other passages. And let's just look at that real quick. Um, actions that Jesus took uh, after being moved with compassion. Healing, raising the dead, weeping with the grieving, touching, providing food, forgiving sins, dying on the cross. The ultimate act of compassion. So Jesus was the model of compassion in action. Didn't just feel it. He acted on it. Okay, now uh, here's where the rubber meets the road. We're going to transition now from Jesus to us. <laughs> I'm going to talk about you and me. And first we're going to talk about me. I'm a lawyer, and I've been practicing for 41 years. After I had been practicing for 26 years in, in the state of Michigan, uh, that's where I was before Tracy and I moved to Pasadena. Practicing law in the state of Michigan and the, the state bar of Michigan had a requirement that every lawyer in the state, in order to maintain their law license, 
had to work 50 hours of pro bono work. Pro bono work is legal work for, the, for people who can't afford to pay you, so it's, you're, you're working for free. And so every lawyer was required to work 50 pro bono hours, and there was a, a loophole that you could drive a truck through, and that was that if you didn't want to work the 50 hours, you could pay $500. <laughs> and so for 25 years, I sort of grudgingly paid the, 20, the $500 and never worked a single hour of pro bono work. Um, and in year 26, I met a girl that changed my career, changed my life. A 13-year-old girl from Mexico. And before I tell you about her, I want to tell you how I met her. I was speaking at a conference uh, of lawyers, and there was another lawyer on the panel who was speaking about human trafficking. This was 2008. I, I hadn't even heard of human trafficking. I'd never heard those words before. It's pretty more, there's a lot more awareness about it now than there was back then. So this lawyer is speaking about human trafficking, and in a, in a break, I, I leaned over to him and I whispered, I'm against that. Uh, pretty profound. <laughs> I'm against that. And he said, <laughs> he said, would you take a case? I said, sure. And a, a week later, a month later, a month later, I met Angela. Angela was growing up in, in Mexico, 13 years old. She was being raised by her grandparents because her mother was a teenager herself when Angela was born. So her mother couldn't raise her. And she really didn't see much of her mother <clears throat> for most of, her, most of those 13 years. In 2008, her mother, biological mother, comes back into Angela's life and says, Angela, I wanna take you to America You'll have a better life there, you'll get an education, and you and I can be, can bond together. Angela didn't want to leave, she loved where she was, but she reluctantly left, and long story short, after a harrowing journey through Mexico, across the Rio Grande River and into Texas, with helicopters and chasing them and everything else, they, along with the mother's boyfriend, arrived in Texas, where Angela was told, you're not going to go to school, you're going to work. And the work was to be put in a prostitution ring in a bar in Houston. And that was Angela's life for many months. Every day, 11 hours a day, she called it work, forced work. She never saw a penny of the money. The mother's boyfriend mistreated her. The men mistreated her, and that was her life. And, she, and the worst part of, about it was there was no hope for her. She had no friends, no phone, no school, and it was day after day after day. There was no end in sight. So let that sink in for just a minute. That is a human trafficking case. It's far from atypical. It's very typical. A 13-year-old girl forced to do that and put into it by her biological mother. So, 
Eventually, the FBI busted that ring. What do we do with Angela? They caught some of the perpetrators, but not all, including the mother's boyfriend, who was perhaps the meanest dude of all. Didn't catch him. They had to move Angela far away. She couldn't go back to Mexico because, sadly, a high percentage of trafficking victims who come out of it get re-trafficked. And the boyfriend knew where she lived. So they sent her, of all places, to Detroit. She'd never seen snow. She'd never spoken a word of English. She had to, she had to go to school in inner-city Detroit, put in a foster family. And one thing she needed right away was a lawyer <laughs> because um, she was a material witness in a criminal prosecution, and she also was technically uh, in the country illegally, but we, the country, our, the U.S. has a, a provision for trafficking victims to get a visa and then ultimately a green card to stay permanently if you've been brought into the U.S. as a result of human trafficking. So uh, most trafficking victims have no access to that. You have to get a lawyer. It can't be done by yourself. So Angela was brought to me. I knew nothing about human trafficking law. I knew nothing even about criminal law. I was a civil lawyer. And they brought her to me, and I said, yes, I'll help her, but I had no idea what to do. I just learned as we went. And I'll tell you, when Angela told me the details of her story, and she never looked me in the eye, I mean, she did eventually, but when she was telling her story, she didn't trust me, she didn't trust anybody. That's one of the results of being trafficked. And when she's telling me her story, I can see those words that we had on the screen, distressed, confused, don't know where to turn. She had all of that written all over her. And my feeling, which I felt in my stomach, was a combination of revulsion, sympathy, and just, I just felt heartsick for her. And probably the main thing was, I want to do something. I really want to do something. And I didn't know what to do, but I was committed to helping her. Um, and I, you know, I look back on that, I look back on that, and I'm grateful that I had that sick feeling in my stomach because you know what it was? It was, it was an image of God moment for me. It was a game changer. And I say an image of God moment because I got to feel what Jesus felt when he saw the crowds. I got to feel that. And it, it motivated me to action. So um, the end of Angela's story to the extent there ever is one for a human trafficking victim, they carry that their whole lives. But it's, it's a bit of a happy story. Angela stuck with it. We got her a visa and a green card. She still lives in Detroit 15 years later. I spoke to her a few months ago. She's married. She has a, a, chi a four-year-old daughter. She has a happy life, and she's free, and she really knows what freedom means.
And I'll just tell you, I, I, I helped. I was there. I gave my loaves and fishes out, uh, meager as they were. I had a law license, and that's basically my only qualification when I started out. And I, I was privileged. I got to see God at work, God redeem a life, okay? And I told you this, this was a life, a career-changing, a life-changing experience for me. Um, let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, I just felt like there were parts of the Bible that started to come alive to me. And I'll give you these verses. You can look them up later, but some of you, you probably already know them. Isaiah 117 talks about seeking justice and defending the oppressed. And I, I felt like that verse was speaking directly to me. Um, you know, human trafficking is in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> In more than one place, but the, the most prominent example is the story of Joseph, whose brothers beat him up, threw him in a pit, and sold him into slavery. That's, that's what human trafficking is. It's one of the greatest evils of our society today, and really of all time. And you can see it all the way back into the book of Genesis. And the Bible calls it evil. It's evil. Um... And I'm sad to say, we call it modern slavery today. It's really not much different than old-fashioned slavery. It's slavery. It's forcing people to work. It's forcing people against their will. With A lot of times with violence, and usually it's for money. That's, that's, modern slavery is slavery. And it's, there's more of it today than there ever has been in history. There are more slaves alive today than there ever have been in history. And I, my eyes were opened. I'm aware now. I have a little thing I can use to help in that fight. It's called a law license. And I just felt like it was so much a part of who I wanted to be as a lawyer, who I wanted to be as a Christian, that I sought out more of that type of work. And I spent years and years and years increasing the amount of human trafficking work I did. I became an expert. I, I would call myself an expert in human trafficking law today. And we've helped a lot of people, and I've trained dozens of younger lawyers how to do it. And to the point where in the last three years, as I saw retirement coming and I, I started to transition towards retirement, I, I've done exclusively human trafficking work the last three years. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. My, my life, my career was changed by Angela. It was changed by God. He brought Angela across my path, and it changed me. All right? Um, now, I said we were going to talk about you and me. We started with me. Now let's talk about you. Hold on, because this may be an uncomfortable ride. <laughs> Um, I'm, I said at the beginning, I'm not a preacher. I've sat more out there than I've ever been up here. This is the first time I've ever stood in this pulpit. So I know what it's like to sit out there and you hear somebody like me talking and you say, that doesn't apply to me because fill in the blank. I've done that. That's what I do. So you're saying, oh, uh, you know, God gave this guy some extra compassion 
He has an extra dose of compassion. That's why he does what he does. That doesn't apply to me. But wait a minute. Were you here when I said I was a lawyer? <laughs> Lawyers don't have compassion. <laughs> if you showed up to law school with compassion, they would train it out of you. We're trained to be cutthroats. So that's no excuse. I don't have any extra compassion. All I ever did was just say yes and put my meager skills out on the table. Okay? So you're saying, this doesn't apply to me because Dan's a lawyer and I can't do what he does because he has a law degree. So I have a story in response to that. And let's put uh, a picture up on the screen. Oh, uh, yeah, let's put the picture of, of Minu up on the screen. Um, and I'll come back to this one. So this is Minu. She's in, she lives in Kathmandu, Nepal. And uh, Tracy and I visited uh, Nepal last November as part of the, part of the uh, um, missions work that we're doing now. Uh, one of the things we do, actually, let's go back to the slide about Zimzam. One of the things I do now as I transition towards um, retirement is I'm trying to use my human trafficking expertise in a ministry context. So Zimzam is a ministry that uh, I helped start actually about 10 years ago. And what we do is we go to uh, India, um, Nepal, Africa, all over Africa. I've been to Africa about six times. And we train local Christian leaders how to plant churches uh, that are focused on children's ministry. We've, uh, over the last 10 years, I think we've had over 1,000 churches planted by the people we trained. We don't plant the churches. We train them how to plant churches. And one of the things we teach is uh, that the church, a healthy church, the church that you're going to go out and plant is a refuge against human trafficking. And that's because we see that out in the field. There's data, there's experience that informs us. And one of the reasons that planting a church can help prevent human trafficking is in lots, in many parts of the world, and Zimzam goes to these hot spots for human trafficking. Like the, I mentioned, the slums of Nairobi. Slums of Nairobi has kids roaming free. They have no parents. They're just living out on the streets. If you plant a church where they live, all of a sudden, they have adults who care about them, who are going to watch out for them. And it takes away a lot of the vulnerability that comes with being a child, being a child on the streets. So we, we know this as a fact, that planting a healthy church in a human trafficking hotspot, Africa, India, Nepal, other places where people are vulnerable to trafficking, planting a church right there will help prevent human trafficking. So this, that slide I had up there was uh, one that we used in, uh, I think it was India, uh, translated into Hindi, where I'm presenting that concept. Planting a healthy church will help prevent human trafficking. If you want to help prevent human trafficking, go plant a church. That's what we tell them. So we were in Nepal, and let's put, let's put Minu back up on the screen. Um, 
And we stayed with Minu, and uh, her skill is not to be a lawyer. She has a different skill. Her skill is sewing. Minu runs a organization called Rescue Training and Development Company. She takes women, young women, who have been abused, trafficked, come out of extreme poverty, and she takes them in for several weeks, maybe 10 weeks, 10 weeks, five weeks, five months, five months, 10 at a time. She trains them how to sew. She teaches them basic life skills. And she teaches them how to start and run a small business. And along the way, she prays for them. She preaches the gospel to them, takes them to church, and most of them become Christians. So she's got what I call a four corners ministry. She's dealing with spiritual needs, um, mental health needs, physical needs, and the gospel. She's pre presenting the gospel to them and become believers. So Minu has different skills than I do, but she's putting them into practice in a compassion ministry. And that's really the lesson I want you to take away from that, from, from Minu. We all have skills. They all come from God. They're all gifts, and they can be used in compassion ministry. So, um, let me just kind of uh, sum up what I've been saying and close with another verse. I want you to see this verse. It's uh, Colossians 3.12. Can we put it up there? Therefore, as God's chosen people, um, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clothe yourselves with compassion. What does it mean to clothe yourself with compassion? It, it's not just to randomly feel compassion. It's to live a lifestyle of compassion. And that's what Jesus did. He was constantly hit in the stomach with compassion because he put himself in situations where he encountered people that needed his compassion. Clothe yourself. It's something other people should see like your clothes. So it's, it's a... It's an exhortation to us. Clothe yourself with compassion. It applies to every believer. You can't say, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't do it. You can't say, God didn't give me enough compassion. Yes, he did. Put yourself in those situations. You will feel it. Okay? And so, one of the things I want you to take away is sort of a definition of compassion. Uh, I, I presented a abbreviated portion of this talk to my grandchildren who are here today, uh, ages 6 through 11. And they got it. They understand, okay? Compassion produces action. But we had to talk a little bit about what compassion is. What's a working definition of compassion? And here I'm going to give it to you. My working definition of compassion based on the rooted materials, and based on this scripture and other scriptures. Compassion is a call 
to action that you can feel in your stomach. Compassion is a call to action that you can feel in your stomach. And when you feel it in your stomach, you need to do what Jesus did. Remember, feel, pray, act. And remember that part where Jesus said to the disciples, you guys pray for workers to be sent in the, into the harvest. And the next verse says, they were sent into the harvest. You notice how God does that? Look, you want to be involved in a compassion ministry? You want to use your skills in a way that helps the people who need compassion? Pray about it. Say to God, send workers into that harvest. And I'm telling you, based on my own experience, <laughs> it's highly likely that God will send you into that harvest. And he'll make the opportunity available to you, and he'll equip you to do it, because all I did was say yes, and it led to all of these dominoes to put me where I am today. Okay? So compassion is a call to action. When you hear it, when you feel it, when you pray it, and God makes the opportunity available to you, I recommend you go, and your life will be different when you do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so um, blown away, really, um, amazed at the compassion that, you, that God the Father has and that Jesus had, that he showed, that he was moved with, that he felt, and it stirred him to prayer and action. And I pray you'll do that with us, too. And I pray that you'll make opportunities available to us to help people who need our compassion and help us to address physical, mental, spiritual needs, intertwined, all at the same time. We can do it. You've given us gifts. Help us to be faithful stewards. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.